wanted to look at a passage from the from the book of Psalms this morning, um, just for a few minutes, and I want to talk on the subject of worship, something I think we all experienced here just, just a few moments ago. I felt like that was a very, very authentic moment of worship. I felt like we, we for a moment in time there, we all really experienced a very, very intimate, a very, very authentic moment of, of praise. Uh, specifically, what we're going to look at is just offering praise to God, you know, expressing that gratitude, expressing that, that, that thankfulness to Him, and, and, and the reason that we do this. You know, why do, why, why do we do this? Why do we worship God? Why do we praise God? What's our motivations for, for, for worshiping and for, and for praising God? We're also going to take a look at the flip side of that, and we're going to talk about some other things that we tend to worship, which is the exact opposite. And that's a subject that we don't like to talk about, and that's, that's idolatry. They're kind, of, uh, they're kind of complete opposites of one another, but one way or the other, we're going to worship something, and we're going to praise something, whether it's God or something else, but we'll get into that in a second. Um, why do we worship God? You know, David gives us some great answers in this scripture out of the book of Psalms that we're going to read. It's Psalm 145, and we're just going to look at the first five verses of it. Um, even though I would encourage you uh, to go back at some other point you know, when, you, when you have an opportunity, and just read and meditate on the, this entire scripture, this whole book, of uh, this whole chapter, uh, Psalm 145. So in verse 1 through 5, we read this. <coughs> Excuse me. David writes, I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you. I will extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. They speak of their glorious splendor of your majesty. And I will meditate on your wonderful works. That's the word of God for the people of God. God. Just to, to kind of set this up for you just a little bit. I don't know that I've preached on anything yet since I've been here on, out of the book of Psalms. Um, and that's not all that, all that rare. Um, you're not going to hear a whole lot of sermons out of Psalms. And, and there's, there's a lot of reasons for that, probably, because there's one thing is it's, it's basically just a book of prayers is what it is. There's not a whole lot of instruction in there. Uh, but to me, the Psalms capture probably the greatest picture of the, the whole meaning or the whole picture of what it means to be a human being. Because, like I said, this is a prayer book. These are, these are written down prayers. This would have, I told you guys before, this would have been the prayer book that Jesus himself used. And we hear him quoting quoting out of the Psalms very, very often in the Gospels. But it just really captures the whole gamut of human, of human frailties, the whole gamut of human emotions. You get anger, you get, you get praise, you get worship, you get people shaking their fist at God and, and questioning why God does the things He does. and You get people who are just not afraid to approach God in all of their, all of their brokenness and all of their anxiety and all of their worry, all of their shortcomings, all of their sins. You see a people who, who, who honestly just talk to God. And that's, that should be a model for us, for one thing. And I, this isn't even in my notes. We should be okay going to God with our purest and our most honest and our most authentic thoughts. God knows what we're thinking long and what we're feeling long, long, long before we even open our mouths to pray for Him. He knows if we're ticked off about something. He knows if we're bitter about something. He knows if we're mad. He knows if we're hurting, those types of things. Take that stuff to God. Psalms is a perfect, perfect, perfect model that it's okay for us to do that. God can certainly handle anything that we have to throw at Him. So don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to take your, your, your realness, your authenticity to your Heavenly Father. 
But what we're going to focus on this morning again is praise. Praise and worship, because that's what Psalms 145, Psalm 145 is all about. You're not, you're, if you have a Bible, by the way, you probably have a note at the top of Psalm 145 that says this is a psalm of David. And it is. This is a psalm that's attributed, attributed to King David, who wrote a lot of the psalms. He actually wrote about, I think, about 73, 75 of the 150 psalms that you'll find in your, in your Bible. This is the first, Psalm 145 is the first of several hymns or songs towards the end of the book of the psalms uh, that's all about praise and it's all, it's all about worship. Interesting thing, and I don't tell you guys, this really has nothing to do with the sermon unless you just want to tell somebody how smart you are someday. This will help you out. But a really cool thing about this particular psalm is that it is written or it was originally written as an acrostic. Well, Pastor, what's an acrostic? In this sense, an acrostic means that each verse of this psalm, it's, it's a poem. Each verse of this psalm would have started off sequentially with the letters in the Hebrew alphabet. In other words, if we were writing this psalm in, in English, verse 1 would start with the letter A. Verse 2 would have started with the letter B, C, D, and so forth. So that's just it's kind of an interesting thing you might want to you know, use someday to show somebody how smart you are. But anyway, that was supposed to be funny, y'all. It's supposed to be funny. Y'all got to work with me. <laughs> it's poetry, and, and, and it shows how much, how much thought and how much heart and how much effort actually goes into the psalm sometimes. We, maybe we don't realize this. Maybe we think this is just people throwing some words out there. A lot of times it's not. People are actually putting some, some real heart and some real work and some, some real effort, effort into the words that they are, they are presenting to God in these psalms. All psalms, all psalms, for the vast majority are generally centered on the objects or the subjects of praise, worship, uh, confession. Sometimes you'll see a combination of all these, but again, today's psalm is just absolutely thick with worship. It's thick with the ideas of praising God. It's a constant theme of David's that we see over and over and over in the psalms. A man who is described as a person or a man after God's own heart. Look at the language that he uses here in these verses. Let's look at verse 1 and 2 real quick. Particularly, look at the verbs. Look at the verbs that, you, that David uses uh, in regards to his worship and his praise of God. I will exalt you. Exalt my king, my God, the king. I will praise your name. Praise forever and ever. Every day I will praise you. That's praise again. And I will extol your name. What does extol mean? It, it, it's basically a heightened awareness of praising, basically. God is a God who is worthy of praise. He is God uh, worthy of exaltation. Real praise, real heartfelt praise. Look a little bit further, though, in 3 and 5. David doesn't just declare his praise for God. He doesn't just de declare that he is doing so. He gives the reasons that he does so. Why is the God that I serve, why is the God that I claim to believe in, the God that I claim to love so much, why is he so worthy of this praise? Great is the Lord, most worthy of his praise, verse 3 says. His greatness nobody can fathom. He's great. One generation commends your works to another. They tell of your what? Your mighty acts. They speak of glorious splendor of your majesty. And I will meditate on your wonderful works. Look at those words that he uses. Greatness, mighty acts, splendor, majesty. That sounds to me like a God who is worthy of some praise. That sounds like a God who is worthy of some authentic and true worship. Both of David and, of course, of us. Later on in the psalm, he gives us some other things. He gives us reasons for God's goodness, his reasons for God's righteousness. He gives us reasons for compassion, for God's compassion. 
And that's why I encourage you to read the entirety of this, uh, the entirety of this psalm at some point when you have some time just to sit with it and to med meditate on these words. It's awesome words. One of my favorite verses in the book of Psalms comes out of this particular one. It's in verse 8. It tells us who God is. It tells us the nature of God. And I've told you guys, I've quoted this before. The Lord is gracious and he is compassionate. He is slow to anger and he is rich in love. Verse, states, I, verse 8 states, I love that. I absolutely love that so much. Revealing the very nature, the very character of God. So Psalm 145, again, praise, worship, adoration, gratitude, thankfulness. All of these are primary themes of Psalm 145. All of these are primary themes very often with David himself as he writes throughout the book. Here's the thing, church. David was a God worshiper. David was a God worshiper. David was a man of gratitude. He was a man of thankfulness. He was a man who stood in absolute awe of the majesty, the magnificent. Notice in here, by the way, David doesn't credit God for doing anything for him. Did y'all pick up on that? Thank you for doing this for me, God. This is why I praise you. I'm not saying anything's wrong with that. David just praises God because he's God, not because he's done anything for him. He praises God just because he is who he is. That's cool to me. That stands out to me. Nothing wrong with thanking God for the things that he does for us, but I think it kind of elevates our sense of worship and our sense of adoration when we simply just recognize God and praise and worship him for who he is. Why do we love you? Why do we worship you? Why do we adore you the way that we do? Because you're God. That's why. In the beginning, not because of anything you've done for me necessarily, although those things are great. Those are definitely certain, certainly reasons to celebrate. David worshiped God simply because he is who he is in all of his majesty, all of his glory. We were created to worship, church, and we can see how David worships. We see how David worships and who he worships. That's part of our creation story. We were created to worship God. Worship and praise is in our DNA. It's not something that we can escape. We have a natural inclination. We have a natural propensity towards worship. When we were created, when creation was created, we were made with that desire and that pull, first of all, to worship God. But, of course, sin entered the world, and that got all muffled and messed up. We know as Christians that our, that our object of worship is Jesus. Our object of worship is God. It's the Holy Spirit. Jesus reminds us that. Remember when he was being tempted by Satan in the wilderness? He quoted, he quoted that scripture out of Deuteronomy. Worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. Worship. Remember what Miss Paulette said this morning to Parker? When Jesus, what Jesus said was the greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength. Worship. We were created to worship. What's the greatest sign of love for God? Authentic praise and authentic worship of Him. Authentic praise and authentic worship of God. But here's the thing. Let me go back to the idea of sin coming into the world and the fact that we were created to worship, that it's in our, day, our, our DNA, that we have this natural propensity once again to worship. Ah, the 
but sin plays a role in that. We are going to worship something, folks. We are going to worship something. Sometimes we're going to worship someone. Is it God that we worship? Is it God that we offer praise to? Or is it someone or something else? And this is a question that we all have to ask ourselves and that we all have to learn to be very, very, very honest about. Because this is what we call idolatry. Anything that we place a higher value on than our relationship with God at any given time, any given time, becomes an idol. And in effect, it becomes what we are worshiping. I know that we have a weird, kind of a juvenile or childlike idea a lot of times of the idea of what idolatry is. I know that we like to maybe think back to the, the Old Testament uh, presentation of the golden calf and, and people bowing down to physical objects. That's certainly a, an example of what idolatry is, but it's a, again, to me, it's a childlike example. It just gives us a base idea of what idolatry is. Idolatry is a huge, huge area. And it's easy to let idolatry creep into our lives, folks. We have to broaden our understanding of what idolatry is. God made perfectly clear his hatred for idolatry. He gave us one of the, one of, it's one of the big ten, for goodness sakes. Exodus 23, you'll have no other gods before me. It's easy to identify these false gods for ourselves, folks. It's not comfortable. It's not fun. But it's really, really easy for us to identify what our true object of worship is, whether it's God or whether it's somebody or, or something else. What do we spend the majority of our time thinking about? What do we spend the majority of our time concentrating on? What do we spend the majority of our time engaging in? If it's anything other than God... It's an idol. And it really is just that simple. If our thoughts are drawn to something else, to a higher level or a greater level, if they occupy more time in our, in our minds, in our actions, and the things that we do throughout the day, we have ourselves an idol. And those can be a lot of things. Here's some common idols that we've talked about before here at Bemis United Methodist Church since I've been here. In the United States, particularly, I would say that wealth, the pursuit of wealth, is a major, major idol for many, many people. Status, social status, is a, so, is a major idol for many, many people. Our job titles. How many of us, this, was, this is such a big one, how many of us are identified by who we are because of our job title? I'm not a, you know, well, I'm a, I'm a whatever. Whatever. In, insert whatever your occupation is. And where do we, how often do we find our identities in that? And what our job is and our job title as opposed to being a Christian who happens to be a pastor. I'm a Christian who happens to be in the Air Force. I'm a Christian who happens to be a plumber. I'm a Christian who happens to be an attorney, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But we switch those around and our job title, our occupation becomes greater than our relationship with God. It becomes, in effect, what we worship. Again, what we think about the most. What we think about the most, what we concentrate most of our minds on, is our subject, of our object of worship. Job titles. How about addictions? There's another one we can talk about. And let's go beyond alcohol and drugs. Of course alcohol and drugs is an addiction. It becomes an idol. How about sex? How about power? How about gambling? How about pornography? How about, 
in the United States particularly? How about consumerism? How about social media? How about television? Here's a big one. How about politics? How about cable news? What do we spend more of our time thinking about, talking about, concentrating on? If it's any of these things, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, you've got an idol in your life. Cut it out. These things control you. Anything that controls, can you stop? Ask yourself those questions. Ask yourself this. Can I stop using social media? Can I stop watching cable news? Can I stop listening to public to uh, to to talk radio? Or does this thing control me? Addictions are big. Addictions are expansive. Let's get beyond the idea of just alcohol and drugs being addictions. There's a lot of addictions out there. Anything that controls you, church, is an idol. Anything that controls you, anything that has power over you, is an idol. It is the object of your worship because you are placing that above God, above your worship. And praise of God. We're always worshiping something, folks. Every, everybody, something, everything that we do, every action we take, every decision that we make is in effect an act of worship. A lot of times we just worship ourselves. We worship our own desires. We worship our own selfishness. We worship our own self-seeking. The things that we want for our lives, not necessarily the things that God wants. David loved God. It is evident from his writings. It is evident from the history that we know of. And David loved God. It's in the words that we read today. Scripture tells us over and over again of his deep appreciation and his deep love for God. Here's the thing. David also knew a thing or two about idolatry. David also knew a thing or two about self-seeking. He also knew a thing or two about self-worship. Despite his frailties, though, despite his shortcomings, despite his sin, God was constantly calling David back to him. God never gave up. He was constantly calling David back to him. And today we know that David was what? He was a man after God's own heart. Scripture tells us that. Folks, he does that with us too. And just like everything else, we got a choice. You know, is God telling me that I'm spending a little, a little bit too much time in, uh, in, in soaking up things that I shouldn't soak up over him? Am I spending a little, bit, little too much time in the mornings doing this when I should be doing this? Am I spending a little too much time uh, trying to create myself in a certain image based on my job or based on my bank account or based on my social status when I should be worshiping God and finding my identity in Him. He's always pushing us in that direction just like He pushed David in that direction. Richard Foster, and y'all heard me talk about Richard Foster before. He wrote this. He said, worship, worship is our response to divine initiative. Worship is our response to divine initiative. Just like everything else, God is the initiator in the worship. How do we respond to God when he initiates that, when he places that in our hearts, when he draws us towards him? How do we respond to that call to worship? Just like so many things in the Christian walk, you know, God initiates that. We respond to it. Chris, scripture, just like today's scripture, is just full of examples of God's efforts, his attempts to initiate, to restore, to maintain fellowship with his children. 
Worship is not just a Sunday morning anthem. Worship is not just a Sunday morning experience. Praise is not just a Sunday morning experience. Worship and praise is an absolute lifestyle, and it comes through. Here I go shaking the bottle again. And it comes through in every facet of our lives. And it will reveal to us and it will reveal to other people the object, the source of our worship. Worship, what we worship, impacts every single facet of our lives. It comes out in our thoughts. It comes out in the words that we speak. It comes out in the actions that we take. And it comes out in the decisions that we make, what we worship, how we worship, will come through in these things. If we are truly, authentically worshiping God, our words, our thoughts, our actions, our decisions are going to reflect those of somebody who is honoring God. If we are worshiping ourselves, if we are worshiping, I keep coming back to this one, but if we're worshiping political parties, it's going to come back to that. If we're worshiping our status, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, the list just goes on and on and on. Our behavior, our words, our thoughts, and our actions are going to be reflective of that. Whether it's God or something else. Whether God or something else is the object of our worship. Do we have thoughts and do we have conversations that reveal that we are people who honor God first in our hearts? What about the daily decisions that we make? Are our decisions God-honoring? Are they worshipful decisions, or are they something else? Do they reveal something else as being the source of our worship? How about the way we treat... How about this one? How about just the way we generally treat people? Does the... Take that back. Let's go back to the condition of the heart. How about the way we generally think about people? Does the way that we think about people, and of course... The manifestation of that, how we act towards people, reveal the hearts of people who are actually worshiping God. Or do they reveal the hearts of people who are actually worshiping something else, some other ideal, some other ideology, for example? That's a big one. How do I think about, how do I think about people who aren't like me? And I don't just mean race or ethnicity or... or, or, or or social status or whatever. What about people who don't think like I do? How do I feel about those people? Does my attitude towards them reflect somebody who is worshiping and praising the God of Israel? Or does my attitude, my words, and my thoughts about those people, those people, reflect somebody who has placed a higher value on some other way of thinking or some other ideology? Worship will reveal itself, folks. Idolatry is one of the biggest obstacles that we have. Placing all these things in our placing these things in our hearts above worship of God. Worship everything that we are, everything that we do, everything that we think, everything that we say, etc. And I know I'm repeating myself, but I can't drive this home enough. 
everything in our lives will reveal the object of our worship. Whether it's God or it's somebody else. And it usually comes out in the way that I either love God, the way that I either love people or the way that I don't love people. That's usually the way it's going to reveal itself. If I'm worshiping something besides God and I'm not loving people authentically, there's something wrong. There's something wrong there. Y'all, I want to, I'm going to open up the altar here in a second for a response. But I want to talk to you for just a moment about the altar call and about the invitation just, just in general. I want y'all, first of all, to understand that, and, and, and I know, I know over the last several weeks, y'all have probably noticed that I've kind of have emphasized the altar call, the time of invitation. And there's a reason for that. I, I, I believe that it's the more, the more I, you know, think I've come to know and the more what little bit of wisdom I think I've grown have uh, been able to accumulate, I think the invitation time is a very, very important time of the service for one thing. I think that uh, I want people to understand that the invitation time of the service is not, is not an extension of the service. It's not an add-on of the service. It is part of the worship service, and it is a very, very, very important part for a number of reasons. Particularly going back in the Methodist tradition, it, it is what we have always called it. It is a response time. It is a time for you guys, for me even, to respond to whatever may have occurred during our time together in worship. Whether it's your response to the message, whether it's your response to, to, uh, to, uh, to something God has just placed in your heart for whatever reason or through whatever avenue, it's that, it's, it gives you that opportunity to respond to it. Sometimes that's going to reflect itself in just coming up to the altar and praying. Sometimes that's going to re you know, reflect itself in saying, you know, coming to me. And, and saying, Pastor, I need you to pray for me for whatever reason. Or, Pastor, I got something I, I got to confess to you. I need to get off my chest. There's a lot of reasons for approaching the altar, and those are, those are just a few of them. The altar is also a place for community. And that's really the parts that I, wanna, that I want us to concentrate on as a church. Y'all, we can, we can give away all the hot dogs in Lowndes County. We can post to every Twitter page, every Facebook page, every Instagram page. We can take out ads in the newspaper. We can put up banners. We can put up signs all over the area. But I'm going to tell you this, and this is just a truth that I've come to acknowledge and, and, and accept as, as the gospel truth, so to speak. <coughs> We're not going to have revival in Bemis United Methodist Church. We're not going to have revival in Lowndes County or Georgia or the United States. We're not going to have an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We're not going to have a church renewal unless we become churches that pray together. Period. Period, period, period. Prayer is the beginning, and it is the source of everything in the world. And, and you know, I'm all for advertising all day long. That's fine, and that's great, but that's, that's, that's minute. Congregations that pray together grow. And I don't just mean numerically. And that is a biblical concept all day long. Kevin, what does 2 Chronicles 7.14 say? That's a promise. That is a promise, folks. You're right on, Kevin. I knew you were going to know that. Or you're going to be very close to it. We want change in our communities. We want spiritual growth in our communities. We're not, we're not going to get it 
through any other avenue than doing what God tells us to do and through his promises that he gives us in Holy Scripture. That's just one of them. If you will humble yourselves, I will do what? We'll bring restoration for one thing. I know it's not comfortable. I, I get that. I'm an introvert by nature, man. I know praying with other people is not comfortable sometimes, especially when you're not used to it. But if you want to see your church grow spiritually, hopefully numerically, if you ever want to have any kind of hope of revival whatsoever, it requires churches that pray together. There's one example, Kevin. Acts 2 gives us other examples where the church did absolutely everything together. They spent their days worshiping, praying together. I always quote to you guys James 5, 14 and 15. Laying hands on one another, praying over another, confessing your sins before one another. Those aren't suggestions, folks. Those are promises, and those are directions for us. So this time at the altar is for that. We don't get to see each other a lot through the week. I'd love to see you praying with each other. Of course, pray for each other's needs. Everybody's got physical needs. Everybody's got emotional needs. Everybody's got spiritual needs. Pray for your communities. Quit going to Facebook and lashing out about all the problems that you have in your communities and start doing something about it through the power of prayer. If we spent half the time in prayer for our communities as we do on stinking Facebook, trying to fix everything, maybe some stuff would get done. If we relied on the power of the Holy Spirit a little bit more, as much as half as, we try to get our opinions out there through the power of social media, maybe the Holy Spirit would actually act and do something on our behalf, on the behalf of kingdom of God. Amen. Altar is open.